As we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our merciful Father, we come before you this morning grateful for your work in our lives. We thank you that indeed we can be still, that we can be at peace, that we can know that you order all things. You provide for our every need. You order the future as you have the past. That there's not one molecule of this earth, not one second of time that is outside your dominion and your lordship. And we worship you because you are the great sovereign one. I pray as we now approach your word, O oh God, that you would please focus our minds. Pray that we would be able to bring all the cares and concerns that are upon our hearts before you. And that you would teach us from your word to run to you for refuge and not anywhere else. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, as uh, Lucas reminded us just before that last song, we are all here with different things upon our hearts and different things that have gone on in our lives that we are carrying with us this morning. There are many foes, if you will, that besiege us as God's people. And it's diverse as it is uh, our congregation, right? Of course, we all have gone through this bitter election season, and it's left us all in different places emotionally. Now, we can all at least agree it's been a bitter contest. And however things ultimately land in any of the races, we can at least say that there are reasons to be concerned about the future of our nation, just even seeing how this last election season went down. And so we carry concerns about the future. We may, some of us struggle with worry and concern about the days ahead. There's an unknown future of our children, for our children, for our grandchildren that can cause anxiety. And yet there are many other things that besiege us. As we know, several are grieving the loss of a loved one. Others are maybe coming to grips with an impending death of a family member. Others of you may be here today and you are strangled by sin and temptation. You are gasping for life as you have given yourself to the temptations of the flesh. And others of you who are listening may be battling apathy and indifference. You know, 2020 is one of those years that you just want to throw to the wind and you just don't really care much about anything because of, of everything that's gone on. You're just kind of fed up with it all. And so we, we all come with different things upon us this morning. But I want to have us ask two questions for us. Number one is for you to look into your own heart and say, what are the burdens that are upon your heart this morning? What are the cares and the concerns? What are the things that are seeking to disrupt your peace? And secondly, where are you turning for help with those burdens? 
What are you doing with those things that are assaulting your soul, that are trying to disrupt your peace? Where do you go? And where do you turn? Because the reality is we need help. We need strength to be able to make it day in and day out and to continue to forge ahead. And, but where we go for help is vitally important. And the Bible calls us to go to God for help, to look to the Lord. And so many weeks ago, I chose that on this morning, I would uh, have us study together Psalm 46. I invite you to turn there if you would, turn your personal copy of God's Word to Psalm 46. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and you're here in the, the worship center, you can use the Pew Bible and page 557. Page 557. And let me just say, if you're here and you don't own a copy of God's Word, uh, you're welcome to take one of those Pew Bibles home. We want you to have a Bible, um, or there's also some at the Connect Corner as well. Um, we want you to make sure God's Word is in your hands. So um, feel free to take that as a gift but Psalm 46, and this psalm has been an encouragement for believers for millennia. Uh, the song, a song we sang last week, written by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was inspired from this psalm. But this psalm was written over 2,500 years ago, and ever since it was penned, it has provided God's people with a reminder and an encouragement to look to the Lord, and it still speaks to us today. Now, we know it was written to be sung, the opening uh, lines say, to the choir master uh, of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So we know it's meant to be sung. But the events surrounding its composition uh, were not entirely sure. There's some debate. Uh, I tend to think that the author has in mind a certain event in Israel's history, particularly the salvation that came about from King's the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, during the time of King Hezekiah. And that will be clear as we go along. But there is a theme throughout this psalm of communal trust. Communal trust. There are uh, first-person plural words all throughout the psalm. We, our, us, that we can't miss. I think we can tend to individualize the psalm, but it was written communally. For us, as a community of believers to see and confess these things together. And so this is a psalm we need to consider together, that we together confess our faith in God as a group of believers. So let's read the psalm together. Follow along as I read Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. 
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now as we look at this psalm this morning, the question you need to ask yourself is, is God my refuge and strength? Is God my refuge and strength? And this psalm is going to help us to answer that question. Now the psalm could be broken up in a couple different ways in terms of structure. You no doubt picked up as I read, there are three selahs throughout the psalm, and you can see those that break up the psalm nicely into three sections. There's also another way to divide it with a refrain that is found twice in this psalm, in verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I believe, and I've chosen to use the, uh, the two refrains as the way to break up our psalm uh, rather than the, the three selahs, but you'll, you'll see as we go along, you can go uh, either way and see what the psalmist is trying to say. So this morning in Psalm 46, we're going to see uh, two reasons God is the one to whom we must run for refuge. Why should God be our refuge? The psalm gives us two reasons, and it's simple. Just to, 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 to show you the path of where we're going, the two reasons are because of who he is and because of what he's done, because of his character and because of his works. It's that simple. So let's look, first of all, verses 1 through 7, his character. The first reason why we should go to God for our refuge of our souls is because of who he is, because of his character. And particularly in these seven verses, there's two aspects of his character highlighted. The first in verses one through three is that he is powerful. He is powerful, verses one through three. This confession begins with a declaration of the character of our God and the response of God's people. It begins right out of the gate, boldly and strongly declaring, God is our refuge and strength. This isn't even a request. This is a declaration. God is our refuge and strength. And here, God's power and his ability to protect his people is celebrated. His power is seen, first of all, that he's a refuge, right? He is a, a refuge, the word refuge is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of both literal and figurative, uh, to have a literal and figurative meaning. Literally, it can mean a, a place of, uh, of hiding or protection. Say a traveler along the road who's caught in some sort of storm and needs shelter and finds a cave. That's a refuge for him. Or Psalm 104 verse 18 speaks of the mountains being a place of refuge for the animals. The the, the mountain badgers and whatnot can find their refuge and protection in the mountainsides. But more often, the idea of refuge throughout the Bible, and, and particularly the Old Testament, is used figuratively to speak of that in which man is trusting for protection, for security, and for safety. It seems to be derived from a military context where they're looking for protection, a fortress to fight the enemy. And it could be a, an elevated place, such as a high tower, in which they have the upper hand. 
or some sort of, uh, of, uh, of elevated uh, cave or perch on the high rock that provides a level of protection that's not available out on the open plain. And so the community of Israel here says, led by the sons of Korah, to say, God is our refuge. They look to him for safety. They look to him for protection of their souls. But not only is he their refuge, he's their strength. God is our refuge and strength. Israel's confessing, we are weak. We don't have the strength. So we look to, to God, who is our strength. They know that they have trials. They have storms of life. And they won't outlast those storms without the strength of the Lord. They will not be able to stand against their enemies unless God is empowering them. But notice that this refuge and this strength is not a one-time help. This is, this is a, God is a regular source of help. Look at the second half of verse 1, a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew here could be translated literally a helper in times of trouble. He is found greatly. He's to be found greatly or exceedingly. The point being that God is a helper to Israel and he is found to be so in extraordinary measure. He's not just a little bit of a helper. He's not one that uh, can only be found sometimes. He's to be found exceedingly a great helper all of the time. There is no reason to doubt his ability or his presence to help. When he is sought, he is greatly found. So friends, I ask you the question that this text prompts us to, to ask, is God your refuge and strength? Can you confess with the writers here that God is your refuge and your strength, the very present help in trouble? Many people want God to be their help when they are in trouble. They shoot up a prayer to God when things in their life are going poorly, but they don't want God to tell them how to live their lives. In other words, they want a savior, but they don't want a Lord. But you see, before God can be our refuge from our present troubles, from the things that plague us in our everyday, God must be our refuge eternally. Christ must be our refuge from our eternal plight. You see, there's a more serious trouble than just the daily things that we face day in and day out. It is the consequences of our sin. It is the judgment that is due upon us from a holy God. You see, many people feel the crush of present troubles, and so they shoot up prayers to God, but they fail to feel the, feel the weight of eternal punishment that looms before them. But folks, the Bible's clear that after death comes judgment. It's inescapable for every single human being. And that judgment is coming because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are in the same camp. We're all in the same bucket. We are all guilty before a holy God. None of us more righteous before this God. We have all rebelled against our creator. And so therefore, there is just punishment of our sins. There is just judgment that is due upon us. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, Romans 6.23. But even though there is judgment, even though that is what we are due, there's hope. 
There's salvation found in Jesus. Jesus is our refuge from eternal punishment. You see, in order for Jesus to be our refuge, we must believe and trust in him. Believing that his sacrifice upon the cross was taking the punishment that we deserved. That he bore the wrath that was due upon us for our sin. And to know that God raised him from the dead victorious so that he would conquer sin and death forever so that you and I could have eternal life and to live with him forevermore. That is the salvation that's offered through Jesus. Just like Noah and his family went into the ark to be saved from the floodwaters of judgment, so you and I must go into Christ to be saved from the fires of judgment. We must find ourselves in Christ and for him to be our eternal refuge. And when we trust and believe in him, we shall be saved, the Bible says. We can know the assurance and security of eternal salvation. To know that God is indeed our refuge and strength at all times, no matter what may come. Because we found salvation in Jesus. I encourage you, if you're here or listening to me this morning, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you know that you are living in rebellion against your creator. Today can be that day of salvation in which Jesus becomes the refuge for you. So that you can go home today and put your head on the pillow tonight that if you were to die tonight, that you have a place eternally secure with the Lord because Jesus is your refuge, that he is saving you from the judgment that you know you deserve, that salvation is offered to every single person. And all you need to do is cry out in the quietness of your own heart for Jesus to save you. Now for those who know Jesus, this opening verse should give us great comfort. We too can say that God is our refuge and strength, right? God is a very present help for us today. When we need help from the Lord, we don't have to wait in line. We don't have to wait on hold, and we don't have to wait for it to buffer. We get instant access to God anytime, anywhere. We have immediate access. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verses 18 through 20. He says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The promise of the Lord is sure. He listens to his people. He bends his ear to, to his people who cry to him for help. He wants to help them. And so we must trust and believe in this promise. Believe in the promise that God indeed listens to our prayer. That God indeed bends his ear towards us. And that God is our refuge and strength. God will protect us. Now listen, folks, this is, God is not just a help for us in the bad times. God is to be our refuge and strength all of the time. We are to depend upon him every single day, every moment. God is glorified as we, we wake up each day and say, God, I'm depending upon you today. My joy and my life today depends upon you. You see, we don't just depend upon God when we're in trouble. It's like a king. He doesn't just go to his castle when the enemies are attacking. He lives in his castle 24-7. And so that way he's prepared for whenever an attack may come because he knows it's in those walls that there is safety. Friends, the same is true with God. 
that we find live within the walls of God. We live encompassed by his love and his protection. The Bible talks about uh, God being a mother hen with, the, with her wings and then we can come and, and come under that protection. And we depend upon that fortress at all times. I want you to notice also from this the exclusivity of the statement that he's not saying that God is one of our refuges, one of our strengths. He is alone our refuge and strength. This is what it means to believe and trust in God. It's not that we tried out God and we try out something else. We exclusively trust in the Lord. No one and nothing else serves this role in the believer's life. God is not one refuge among many. Because we are in Christ, God is our ever-present help. And the text goes on to say that when we trust in God, fear dissolves. Fear is banished. Look at verse 3. Verse 2, rather. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 2 explicitly says, therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, because God is our refuge and strength, because he is an ever-present help in trouble, we will not fear. And it's only because that is the kind of God that we have that we do not need to fear. It's because of faith in this God that believers can face calamities with courage. The psalmist says, they won't fear, though the very ground beneath their feet were to disappear. I mean, some drastic words here in verse 2 and 3. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, the author here seems to be speaking of physical disaster. I, I, in one sense, uh, commentators think he could be talking about an earthquake, which is very, very possible. The, uh, Israel lives in a seismic uh, zone is the, the land of Israel is in a seismic zone. They experience earthquakes. We here in California are familiar with earthquakes as well, are we not? And the mountains trembling, the boulders from the mountains falling off and tumbling down into the sea, the, the earthquakes that cause the, the big waves, tsunamis, right, within the ocean, causing them to roar and to foam. And it's that very disruption of the ground beneath our feet that is extremely disturbing, right? If, say, you get dizzy with something, you have to hold on to solid ground and regain your equilibrium. Or we talk about getting grounded, right? From flying around, or whatever, we've got to get back to the ground and we've got to get grounded. But when that very ground, that very fixed point of reality from which we orient everything else begins to move, it costs everything else into chaos, it causes everything else to be thrown into disarray. And it's disorienting. And yet, that's what's so powerful about what the psalmist is saying. That even if that very fixed point of reality, the very thing from which we feel grounded and secure in, begins to move and tumble and move away, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. We can face those calamities. No matter what Here's an earthquake, but this, is, this can be applied to other natural things, sicknesses and, 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 and calamities that we face in this life. That even though these things happen to us, even though they are destructive, we don't need to fear. Because God is the greater fixed point of reality. 
In the midst of everything physically around us getting disoriented and falling away, we still have our eyes set upon God who is our refuge and strength. We don't lose sight of the Lord, even though things physically in our lives is getting disrupted. Back in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were preachers called circuit riders. You may have heard of them that traveled around the country preaching the gospel on horseback. And as they did this, they had to cross many rivers. This is before there was any towns, any infrastructure. And, uh, and as the as they were crossing these rivers, sometimes uh, very tumultuous uh, rivers, uh, and as the horse would go into this furious current, they, they would tell about how the fact that they had to fix their eyes upon a fixed point on the other side, a tree or a boulder, something that was on the other opposite shore as they went through the, 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 the raging torrent. Because if they began to look at the swirling waters around them, they began to be very disoriented and they would be easily get swept away off their horse and to their demise. In the same way, in the midst of the tumultuous things of life, we've got to keep our eye fixed on the opposite shore, right? Keep our eyes fixed on that which is truly fixed, and that is the Lord himself, the God who is a refuge and strength. If we spend our time thinking about our troubles, our sufferings, the unknown future, we will only find ourselves swept away by fear, by doubt, and worry. So, if God is our refuge and strength, if we see his power and trust in him, then fear dissolves. Fear banishes, and we can live boldly. I believe these believers here are saying, we're not going to cower in fear. Yes, we go to God in refuge for refuge and strength. Yes, we feel weak. Yes, we don't have the strength that we need, so we go to God. But that doesn't cause them to cower in fear and simply stay in the fetal position as they trust in God. No, they, they trust in God as a refuge and strength, but then they live without fear. Yes, we confess that maybe, Lord, I am fearful, but I'm going to go to you. And now, by his grace and his strength, we have that we're able to step out and live boldly and confidently for him. That is what it means to live as God is a refuge and strength. Not that we're all cowered in, 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 in fear, but that we've gone to him, trusting in him, and stepping out in his strength. So we see that we need to trust God because of his character and that he is powerful. We see in verses one through three. Let's look next in verses four through seven. We, we see that the psalmist highlights that he is present. He's powerful, but he's also present. Verses four through seven. Now verse three ended with a selah, a, uh, a word that probably meant to pause in the music, a pause to reflect upon what was, what was read, what was sung. But after that pause, the, so, the sons of Korah pick up in verse 4, saying, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And they turn here to say that the, there were torrential waters, torrential waters of verse 3, but now there's a peaceful river. Now there's calm, there's peace. Now this could mean the physical streams or rivers that are flowing near Jerusalem, such as the brook Kidron, or it's simply a, 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 a metaphorical reference to talk about how all the surging waters of life that are, that are torrents out there looking to sweep away believers in God's power and with his people, they are now only peaceful streams. God's power changes it so that the city of God experiences gladness. 
And it gives a picture of a garden, does it not? And it casts our minds to think the beginning and end of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible where man was, was created and set in the Garden of Eden, in which they were there with the presence of God and there, was, there were rivers that ran through the garden and there was peace and prosperity. And to that Edenic, uh, Edenic uh, place that we will, we will return to again. When God makes the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, in which there will be, be a river that flows from the throne, providing health to the nations. The city here speaks of Jerusalem, the city of God. We know that because not only has it, is it called that way elsewhere in Scripture, but here it talks about the holy habitation of the Most High. The place where God's glory dwells. This is God's special city that he set apart in the land of Israel where, where the, the temple w- would be, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, and where there his, therefore his glory would be. And it's because that God's glory is there in this city that makes the city so special. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God's presence is what provides Jerusalem with its security. They're not to de- they don't depend upon their uh, military. They don't depend upon their walls. They depend upon their God who is in the midst of her. There's no greater honor for a city to have than to know that God is in its midst, that God is its protection, that the Lord of all the earth dwells within her. And it says that God will help her when morning dawns. He's eager. He's up at the, the break of dawn to help at whatever, need, whatever is needed. Now, one thing that you're not going to necessarily pick up from the English translation is that uh, the word uh, moved here, at the beginning of verse 5, it says, she shall not be moved, is the same Hebrew word that's used in verse 2 to speak of the mountains being moved and spoken of in verse 6, where it says the kingdoms totter. So you can see that the, the mountains move, the kingdoms move, but, it, but Jerusalem and Israel shall not be moved. You see that? God is in the midst of this city and they remain stable. Whereas the world of nature, the mountains, the sea is unstable. Whereas the world of men and politics and nations and kingdoms, they totter, they move, they're shifting. But the city with God in her midst will not be moved. Now verse 6 carries this contrast, right? The stability of Jerusalem and the instability of the world of men. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. He begins by saying the nations rage, a familiar phrase that we know from Psalm chapter 2, right? The nations rage against the Lord. The kingdoms, it says, move and they totter, they shift Rulers come and go. Empires come and go. The nations of this world crave dominance and power. They want superiority. But every single nation, every single ruler from the beginning of time has been dominated by the sovereign one. Dominated by the Lord. The nations, Psalm 40 says, are like a drop from a bucket before him. He is the mighty ruling king, the creator of all, and the nations are like a drop from a bucket. 
He reigns and rules over all. And and the the sons of Korah here bring out in verse 6 that he then utters his voice and the earth melts. There's this reality of of a destructive nature of God's voice. And it's not often that we think about God's voice as being destructive, right? We think of, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that God's voice is creative. But here it speaks of God's voice being destructive, being powerful. And Psalm 29 is a, is a great psalm that speaks about the power of God's voice. And Psalm 29 verse 4 says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And then verses 7 and 8 in that psalm says, The voice of the Lord flashes forth fi- flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shatters the wilderness. God's voice can do whatever he wants because it's an extension of his power and of his being. And so mankind, we should be able to put together, if God spoke and this world came to be, then there's something powerful with his voice. And we should be put on notice that he can then do whatever he wants with that voice. And therefore, we should submit to the one whose voice is so powerful. We should be in fear and awe of him. And this is exactly what Psalm 33 says. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Get this. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There should be a fear of God upon every inhabitant of this world because of the fact that God spoke this world into existence. Therefore, he simply needs to speak and can do great and mighty things, including bring about our own judgment. But here it's clear in verse 6 that God will have the final say. No nation, none of those tottering nations will be able to have an upper hand over God. No, he is the one that causes the earth to melt. Verse 7 has a refrain that's also repeated in verse 11, as I mentioned earlier. Look at it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Lord of hosts, Yahweh of, of hosts, Yahweh of armies is with us. The Lord Almighty, as it's sometimes translated. And this verse is really a summary statement of what we've seen so far. It highlights the fact that God is in the midst of Israel and that because he's in the midst, he's a strong fortress. He's something that can be trusted. He's a refuge. This this word for fortress, uh, uh, another word for, for refuge that the psalm starts with. And so here, the psalmist, the sons of Korah, celebrate the fact that God is on their side that God is in their midst and that they need not fear, that they can trust him at all times and that they are secure in God. So what does that mean for us? Well, church, we who stand on the other side of the cross, we know that these promises are true for us as well. We know that God is with us today just as God was present with Israel. I remind you of What Jesus said right before he ascended to the earth when he spoke to the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Declaring, knowing that the disciples he spoke that to would not make it to the end of the age, but knowing that that word would be passed on to generation to generation of believers in the church for us to have the promise that Jesus our Lord is with us. Even as time marches on, Jesus remains with us. Friends, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Remember what his name is? 
It's Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God came to be with us through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, the Word made flesh, that illustrates before all, for all time for us to know that God has come to dwell with man and that God is with us. The giving of Jesus Christ gives us the greatest confidence that the Lord of hosts is with us. And his presence should build up our fortitude. It should increase our faith. It should increase our trust. We have the Lord with us. Our confidence and faith in this world is found in knowing that God is with us. That we do not march out into this world on our own. We don't live our daily lives by ourselves. We have God with us. And so we need not fear. We need to have trust and confidence. Remember what Paul asks in Romans chapter 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can stand in our way? What can come and assail us and have dominance and have victory over us? Nothing is the answer. And a few verses later, Paul declared, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, the church is, is not cowering in fear, but because we have God with us, because God is on our side, because the God of Jacob is our fortress, we can live our daily lives with confidence, with fortitude, knowing that the Lord is on our side. We should be a community of people with strong faith, trusting the Lord, not fearful of the future, not fearful of what's coming, but knowing that, that God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is with us. Amen? Let us have that confidence in our souls. Let us not allow the things that our eyes can see to, 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 to erase the things that our heart needs to see. Well, let's walk by faith, not by sight, and have that confidence, that faith. And friends, believe me, we all have failing faith, right? None of us have perfect faith in which we can confidently say, I always trust and I never falter. No, that's where the gospel comes in, that we have a, a, a loving shepherd in Jesus who understands our weaknesses. The great high priest, Hebrews chapter four, right? That, that he descended from heaven and he ascended as the great high priest so that we, in moments of need, can approach the throne of grace and find mercy and help. We can go to Jesus because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. So don't hear me say that we've just got to have perfect faith and don't ever show chinks in your armor. No, we are a community of people that recognize that we often falter in our faith. But it's in those moments of faltering that we go to our great high priest, go to the throne of grace, plead for help, go to God our refuge and say, God, help me to live confidently for you. Help me strengthen my faith, I pray. It's like the father in the gospels who brought his, his, his uh, demon-possessed son to Jesus and Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like we're, we're, we can be this walking dichotomy sometimes, right? Where we know that we believe, but we can often feel the weakness of our faith. And Jesus understands that. He's gentle with us. He sympathizes with us. And so let us live courageously for Christ, yet depending upon him, going to him all the time. You see, it's the presence of God with us that gives us security. Someone once said, security is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God, no matter what the danger. Security is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God, no matter what the danger. 
But not only is God with us individually, God is with us corporately. God is with Foothill Bible Church. I remind you of the words of 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about God's spirit dwelling within the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, we know the spirit dwells within believers individually, but I believe these verses are speaking about the spirit dwelling within the church corporately. We are God's temple. And so if God is with us, we can be confident that we shall never be moved. We can know security, protection, and safety in the arms of God. Now, we've been talking about security. We've been talking about protection. Never be moved. Refuge and strength. Don't need to fear. And yet, we can know that in our own daily experiences, wait, never be moved? Uh, God, I'm feeling moved and shaken all the time. I, I'm going through some really hard things right now. There's great affliction in my life, great suffering. How can God be my refuge and strength and this great confident language that God is in the midst of me and, and shall not be moved? And yet, I've experienced such great pain. It's important for us to remember, church, that to follow Christ is not a promise of a pain-free life. Following Christ is not a promise of a pain-free life. And that's not what these verses are promising either. But we are promised a secure future. We are promised that we are eternally secure. We are in the Father's hand, and nothing can snatch us out of that hand. Remember that. We are united to Jesus. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him, and now our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden, secure, tightly fastened to Jesus, and nothing can touch that. No pain of this life, no suffering we experience, no attacks that we receive. Our future is guaranteed. Paul says in that Colossians 3 that we will appear with him in glory. We will appear with him in glory. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul that this life is a life of seemingly contradictions. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, yet but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. We know that, that tension, Right? We feel the suffering and the pain of this life, and yet we know that it's not ultimately going to destroy us. We know ultimately we will not be shaken because the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Oh, believer, I, this reminds me of the stories of the martyrs, the stories down through church history of those believers who have stood their ground, stood their faith in the face of great persecution. If you have not spent time reading Fox's Book of Martyrs or other accounts of the martyrs down through history, those who have been killed for their faith, it's hard read, but it's a necessary read to see believers who stand in the face of great persecution and yet they know that they are secure because they are with Christ. That is life in this age that we stand with Jesus, we are eternally secure, our life is hidden with him, 
And yet, there can be great pain and there can be great affliction. But to be reminded that no matter what we may face, even if it means going to the stake to be burned, as so many of the martyrs did, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Those martyrs called out to the Lord and trusted him even in those final moments, knowing that God was keeping them and holding them. Well, we need to stand together in this. This is all of us individually trusting God and going to God as our refuge, but it's also us corporately together reminding each other that God is our refuge, speaking truth to one another, trusting God corporately, being, we need to be reminded of God's character, that he is a strong tower, a mighty fortress. We cannot live this Christian life by ourselves. The, in the Christian life, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. We were meant to live life in community, meant to live it in corporate nature together. This is not just a bunch of individual Jesus followers who, who just kind of do their own thing. No, the church was not plan B. It was God's intention from the beginning. You, if you follow Jesus, are meant to be living in community in the church. Isolation is deadly. We need each other. We need to strengthen each other. We need to support one another because you know our faith gets weak when we live by ourselves. You know the illustration of, of looking at a fire, right? And there's a bunch of coals there. And if you pull one of those coals out by itself, does it remain hot? No. It dwindles. It, it burns out. It goes cold. The same is true for Christian fellowship. If we aren't vitally connected to the church, by live, trying to live the Christian life by ourselves, we will grow cold. And friends, we cannot allow the coronavirus, the responses to the coronavirus, the politics, or anything else to tear apart the fabric of relationships within our church. We need each other to be a community of people that look to God as our refuge and strength. It reminds me of the sequoia trees. If you've ever been up to Sequoia National Park, and the sequoia trees of California tower as much as 300 feet above the ground. And strangely, these giants have unusually shallow root systems that reach out in all directions to capture the, any available amount of surface moisture. But seldom will you see a redwood standing alone because high winds would quickly uproot it, as we've seen around here, right, uh, just recently. But that's why they grow in clusters. Their intertwining roots provide support for one another against the storms. What a great illustration of the church, right? We grow together, that we might protect each other against the storms of life. So, we must remind ourselves that Christ is present with us. He is powerful, he is present, and that character compels us to go to God and to run to him for refuge. Let's look with the time we have remaining, our, the second point, the remainder of this psalm, the second reason why we can run to God for res refuge, and that is his works. We looked at his character, secondly here in verses eight through 11, his works. You know, it's a principle that we find repeated throughout Scripture that we can trust God in the present and in the future because of what he's done in the past. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his track record, we can then trust him for what he's done. And that's exactly what the sons of Korah do in verses 8 through 11. Look at verses 8 and 9. They write, Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease of the earth, to, to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now, he says, come behold. Come look upon. Come see the works of the Lord. He's calling them, summoning them to come and to gaze with their eyes once again upon what God has done. They need to see it again. They may have forgotten. It's easy to forget what God has done. We need to look at it again. And that's what the the psalmists do here. Now, most commentators believe the situation being described here, as I mentioned earlier, is the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Sennacherib. This account is found in 2 Kings 18 through 19 and in Isaiah 36 through 37. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has come and has destroyed the northern kingdom and is now knocking on the door of Judah and Jerusalem. And in fact, Sennacherib is mocking Jerusalem and mocking Hezekiah for their trust in God. He goes, you, all these other nations we've destroyed. They trusted in their God and this people trusted in their God. What makes you so sure, O Judah, that Hezekiah's God is actually going to save you because all these other gods haven't saved these peoples? And people were begin quaking in their boots. They were, they were freaked out. And Hezekiah was, was not sure what to do and he cast himself before the Lord. He, Hezekiah called for a, a day of prayer and fasting, seeking the Lord's help. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, told Hezekiah not to fear because God was going to bring about deliverance. God said this, quoted in Isaiah 37, he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God promised to save Jerusalem. And then the text says, Isaiah 37, verse 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. God worked miraculous salvation for Israel in that day. And I believe the psalmists here are looking to tell Israel to look back upon that account and behold the works of the Lord, that he has brought desolations on the earth. I mean, just look over the wall and see the 185,000 dead people out there. He's wrought desolations. He's caused the wars to cease. Now we see here that God is the primary actor and the victor. He is the one who is bringing about the end of these wars. And he has absolutely destroyed his enemies. Now as Israel reflected upon these events, they were to be strengthened. Be reminded that yes, God did do that. Yes, he did work that deliverance. He brought about that salvation. Amen. That is the God we serve. That is our God. That is Yahweh of hosts. And their faith would be strengthened. But see, this principle is the same for us today. We too need to look back and behold what God has done. We need to see how God has worked in the past. And friends, that is what, one of the reasons we need to read the word of God. Because this tells us through all of those stories of what God has wrought, what he has done in the past to his people. We can also look back through our own lives and through church history and see how God has, has worked. As one Puritan writer says, uh, God's providence is read like Hebrew, where you read it backwards. You, 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 you can only see God's hand as we look back through history, rather than knowing what he's going to do in the future, in our present day. But we have the recorded history of God. And so let's read our Bibles. Let's read about how God, God uh, created the world. He flooded the earth, saved Noah, 
struck Egypt with plagues and brought Israel out by splitting the Red Sea and placed them in the land by defeating all their enemies and how he ultimately brought his son who took on flesh to die upon a cross so that he might bring many to salvation. You see, these works of God found in the Bible are written for our instruction. Romans chapter 15, verse four says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We must read the word, we must get hope for the present. Now this, we can reflect upon what God has done in our own lives, can we not? Each of us have stories to tell. And this is one of the benefits of journaling so that we can record God's hand as it's happening and be able to look back and to be able to read and see how God answered prayers, to see what God did so that we can give him praise and be strengthened for the future and go, yes, I remember that time of my life. I had forgotten how stressful it was. I had forgot how, 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 how much in anguish I was, but now I see that God brought me through that. And so what I'm facing today, God can get me through this too, just like he got me through that former time. We need God's path faithfulness to encourage us in the present. This reminds me of a, of a story. This is what we'll, a uh, uh, story from uh, the Civil War. Stonewall Jackson, he, uh, he, was, he and his sister were crossing a treacherous torrent just below the Niagara Falls. And the current so rocked and tossed the boat that the woman became terrified. And Jackson took her firmly by the arm and turning to one of the two boatmen said, how often have you crossed here before? Continually, sir, for the past 12 years. And did you ever meet with an accident? Never, sir. N never capsized and never lost a life? Nothing of the kind, sir. And so turning to his sister, Jackson reassuringly replied, you heard what the boatman said. Unless you think you can row better than he does, just sit still and trust him as I do. And this is right where the psalmist goes. Verse 10. After talking about what God has done, he turns and says, be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Folks, this, this verse is the first time in the psalm God speaks. We saw God's verse and vo voice in verse six, spoken about generally. Here, God opens his mouth and we need to take notice. This command, be still and know, are not words spoken as to a counselor, to an upset friend and come alongside and sit down and be still. No, we need, to, we need to read these words in the context in which these enemies have just been defeated. These words are a rebuke. These words are a command to the subdued enemies to sit down and to be quiet because I am God. I will be exalted, he says. He's speaking to these raging nations who who need to sit down and be silent and desist. They need a theology lesson. They need to, be, to know who it is that defeated them is none other than Yahweh of hosts. You see, Yahweh is not a regional God who only has dominion over Israel and Judah. He's the God who reigns and rules over all. And his sovereignty will be recognized over the entire earth. Every nation will see him exalted far above all. And in the end, he will be the victor. And this is a word we need today as well. Nations today are still raging against the Lord. They hate God. They want nothing to do with him. They want to be their own kings and their own lords. 
Humanity has rejected the lordship of God. And this is why they must hear this message today. Every leader of, of this nation and every other nation needs this message from the mouth of God to be still, to desist, to sit down, to be quiet and know that he is God and he will be exalted over the earth. And so, if this verse is to rebellious nations, then what can, what can this verse mean to us? How is this, does this do anything for us? It does in two things. One is to remind us to be humble before our sovereign God as well. He is God. We are his children. May we never rage proudly. May we never grumble and complain in our own pride about what he is doing. But may, we should be in awe of his majesty as we have learned to do. The second thing it does for us, it reminds us that God will win in the end. We know the end of the story, right? That Jesus will return riding upon a white horse to vanquish his enemies and the destruction will be complete. It, he will vanquish all of his foes, all of his enemies. No one will escape his wrath and he will be exalted in all the earth. No one else can hold that exalted position. He will receive the praise that is due to his name. And this, this declaration will come true. So friends, may we never forget who God is and what he's done. And may we run to him for refuge, even when all around us is swirling and causing us to, get, to threaten us to get swept away. May we encourage one another, even as we see each other's weak faith, may we encourage one another to trust in the Lord, to go to him as our refuge and strength. And we run to him for refuge, we will never be shaken and never be disappointed. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I pray that everyone here, everyone listening to me, would indeed have Jesus as their refuge. That they would not be trusting in their own righteousness, their own goodness, thinking themselves as a generally good person. Father, there is a wrath that is coming that no physical refuge can protect against. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see who you are and what you've done and cause us all to respond in faith, bowing our knees before your awesome majesty and trusting you for the present and for the unknown future because you are a very present help in our trouble. We thank you for that love, for that grace, for that compassion. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.